In uh, about 15, 20 years ago, there was this little four-year-old boy who started, oh, thanks, started having stomach aches. And parents took him to doctors. Doctors didn't really know what to do. And so they sent him back home with some meds. But then it got a little worse. So they took him back. Doctors still aren't really sure what's going on. This little boy, his name was Colton. Um, and his father, Todd, was a, uh, was a pastor, and they lived out in the Midwest. And they keep going to different doctors and referring and referring because the pain just gets worse. And, and the kid just seems to keep getting more and more desperate. And we'll come to find out, he, despite being as young as he was, he had contracted a case of appendicitis. As many of you know, it's very treatable. You take the appendix out, but you have to know that it's there. And because he was so young, they didn't think he was capable of contracting it. And as a result, his appendix ruptured. This is where it gets really, really scary whenever something like this occurs. And so Todd calls up his church, calls up the people in his community, and says, I need y'all to pray. Colton's not doing well. After several hours of surgery, the doctors come out and tell him, uh, hey, we got it. It's, he's okay. Um, there's a couple moments where it was very, very touch and go, and where we weren't sure if we were, he was going to make it, but he pulled through. We got his appendix out. He's going to make a full recovery. They thought, okay, case closed. Praise God. He's okay. Everything's better. Then uh, something weird started happening over the next coming weeks with Colton. See, Colton started talking about the time he died. And his parents were like, you, you died? What, what, are you, what are you talking about? He said, yeah, yeah, the time I died. I, I went and I, I hung out with God. I spent time with Jesus and yeah, I went to heaven. And they said, no, what, what, what are you talking? And they, and they start wondering, maybe he had dreams. Maybe like during his dreams or maybe the anesthesia did something to him. And um, he said, no, I know, I know, like I died while I was on the table. Like I knew the doctors were operating on me and I died. Later on, Todd ends up going back to the hospital and saying, look, my son is saying some weird stuff about the time he died. And they said, what do you mean? They said, well, he says he died and he was there for, spent time with God. Like, did, did he die? And they said, okay, full transparency, we might have lost a heartbeat for a few minutes at one point. So technically speaking, yeah, he kind of did die at one point. Uh, did he go to heaven? I, I don't know. That's up for y'all to decide. You're the pastor. And so he ends up, telling some people at his church, and then there starts being some backlash. But here's what's crazy. Colton starts talking about different details of heaven, but then Todd pulls open scripture and realizes, wait, that's exactly how Colton described it. And when it got really weird, because they thought maybe Colton had a Bible, Sunday school Bible lesson where they talked about heaven and he just knew things and he imagined it. And then at one point, his dad said, well, Colton, tell me about, like, who all did you see in heaven? And he talked about seeing his grandparents who had already passed away and spending time with them. But he said, I, I also, hey, I want you to know, mom and dad, my sister, she loves you. And she says, hey. And they said, well, your, your sister didn't, she's right outside, right over here, your big sister. He said, no, 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 my other big sister, the one who, who passed away already. And Todd and his wife, they hadn't told the family, they hadn't told a whole lot of people that they had actually miscarried a little girl 
right before Colton was born. And so Colton said that I spent time with them. And, well, word starts spreading about this. It's a small community. Media outlets start picking this up. And they had this decision to make because there's pushback. Hey, you're just trying to get famous. That's all what this really is. You just want more people to come to your church. That's what's really going on. As a result, Colton and Todd, Todd was so convinced that his son truly did go to heaven and have this divine experience that he wrote a book called Heaven is for Real. There's also a movie made of it afterwards about the time that his son actually went to heaven. Still to this day, there are still people who push back on Colton and Todd Burpo's story. But Todd still to this day says, I stand behind my son. And Colton, who's now in his 20s, says, I really did see what I saw. And I stand by this experience despite all the pushback they get. This is a common theme in Scripture. In 1 Kings chapter 22, there's this story uh, about this, these two kings. One is Jehoshaphat, who was king of Judah. He was a good king. He loved God and he, and he worshiped God. And then there was King Ahab of Israel. Ahab was a horrible king. He was the worst king Israel ever had. And we know that because scripture, scripture literally says he was the worst king Israel ever had. Before and after Ahab, nobody was worse than Ahab. And so there, the two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, are about to combine forces and go into battle. But before that, Jehoshaphat says, hey, Ahab, I think we need to consult a prophet of God to see, is this a good idea for us to, to go into battle or is this bad? Because if God doesn't want us to, then we shouldn't. So uh, Ahab says, sure, let's bring in some prophets. So Ahab brings in prophets. They all say, yes, Ahab, attack and be victorious. You will win this battle. Jehoshaphat saw through this, though. You see, Ahab had a number of prophets who doubled as what we would call yes men. They told Ahab whatever he wanted to hear. Uh, sh- should, we be, should we attack? Sure, attack, you'll be victorious. How's my hair look? Amazing. It looks phenomenal. How about uh, the wardrobes? Couldn't have looked better. And so Jehoshaphat sees through this, though. And so Jehoshaphat says, Ahab, is there like a prophet of God we could talk to? Because he kind of knows these are not prophets of God. They're people who tell you what you want to hear. And Ahab literally responds with this. He said, well, there is this one prophet, but I hate him because he never says anything nice about me. And Jehoshaphat looks and thinks, okay, nine-year-old girl, um, let's... Are there other options that we could do? Is there any other? Pro- he said, well, I mean, I par- apparently he's a prophet of God, but he never says anything nice about me. I hate him, but uh, if you want to bring him, I guess we can. So this guy, this young man by the name of Micaiah is brought to Ahab and Jehoshaphat. And they said, what do you think about this battle? Should we go into battle? And Micaiah says, yes, attack and be victorious. Ahab immediately stands up and says, I know for a fact you're lying right now, Micaiah. You never say anything nice about me. That was way too nice. And Micaiah said, yeah, it was. Uh, And then he says something really interesting. He says, I saw God seated on his throne. And all the angels were swirling around him and God asked them, who will go and send a false message to Ahab so that he will go to his death? Micaiah said, and I saw an angel go and said, I will go and I will be a lying spirit through the voices of so many prophets. And so Micaiah basically goes to Ahab and by telling him this, he says, go attack, be victorious. 
but you will die. He told the worst king of all time he's going to die in battle. Guess how Ahab responded. You don't need too many tries, right? Ahab gets up and says, carry Micaiah off to prison, and when I get back from battle, I will kill him. And as Micaiah's being drug off, here's how convinced he was that this was going to happen. As he's being drug off, he says to Ahab, if you do return from battle alive, please do kill me because I am not a prophet at that point. Please take my life. We don't hear about Micaiah for the rest of scripture. We have no idea what happened. We know he was taken to prison. Did he get out? Did he die in there? What happened after? We really don't know. We do know, though, that Ahab did indeed die in that battle, though. Fascinating throne room experience, but he wasn't the only one. See, um, Cole read from Isaiah chapter 6, and we love this passage. You've probably read it or heard about it before. Isaiah is, uh, he, he talks about the beginning. He says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne on high. And this incredible story of these animals who fly around with all these eyes and wings and, and they're chanting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. And we love this picture. But we need to set the table a little bit for this vision because the fact that King Uzziah died that year was a big deal. See, Uzziah was a good king. He worshiped God. He was good to the people. But the kingdom after Uzziah is about to have a run of kings who are not good men. They are people who worship anyone but God. They did a whole lot of wickedness. The kings were out for their own good. They didn't care about taking care of the rest of the people in their nation. They just wanted theirs. And as a result, Isaiah has this vision the year that King Uzziah died where he sees God and he sees these animals and they're chanting and what an incredible experience where Isaiah knows the history of those who see the face of God. They die. That was what was understood. If you see the face of God, you cannot live to tell that story. So as a result, Isaiah sees this and says, woe to me for I am a man of unclean lips and I have seen the face of God knowing this is it. I'm about to die. And the scripture says that a seraphim, an angel, came and grabbed a burning coal from an altar that was below the throne and pressed it to Isaiah's lips and said, see, your guilt is taken away. And after this, God says, whom will we send to the people to deliver our message? And of course, Isaiah has his guilt taken away. He's standing before God. All these funky looking animals are flying around and chanting all this cool stuff. What an incredible experience. So Isaiah's got to be thinking, I get to tell people about what I'm seeing right now. Why would I not want to do this? For us to shout and worship, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So Isaiah says, and we sing about it sometimes, here am I, send me. Which sounds really great. And we love to repeat that, right? Here's the part where after, oftentimes when you hear about that story, a lot of people stop reading the passage or you stop hearing about what happens. Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And then God says, yes, go. And, to, and say this to all the people, listen carefully, but don't understand. Watch closely, but learn nothing. Harden the hearts of these people, plug their ears, shut their eyes. That way, they will not see with their eyes, hear with their ears, or understand with their hearts, and turn to me for healing. <laughs> and of course, God is, uh, Isaiah is sitting there thinking, I really thought it was going to be about these animals. This is a uh, bummer. So he thinks, okay, maybe I just have to deliver that message once. 
And so Isaiah says, okay, um, for how long? Because in, in essence, when he says, see, hear, but don't understand, because you're going to turn away from me. This is, this is God's way of saying, I want you to go and tell the people they've turned away from me and they were a horrible, wicked people. This is a you suck message to be delivered to all of Israel. I don't know if you know this or not, but people don't like being told that they're terrible. Did you all know that? It's crazy. So Isaiah gets to tell people this. You're the worst. Congratulations. God wanted me to let you know. So Isaiah thinks, okay, maybe I just tell him like one time and then we can be like, hey, buddy, sorry. Can we have, let's bury the hatchet. But instead, Isaiah says, how long should I do this? And God says, until their towns are empty, their houses are deserted, and the whole country is a wasteland. Until the Lord has sent everyone away, and the entire land of Israel lies deserted. If even a tenth, a remnant, survive, it will be invaded again and burned. But as a terebinth or oak tree leaves a stump when it is cut down, so Israel's stump will be a holy seed. So, he gets to tell Israel that they're terrible. And then when Isaiah says, how long? God says, don't tell people until there's no one to tell anymore. And then if only the buildings are left, go tell the buildings after that too. And then once those fall down, then you can go. After, basically after no one is left, tell them they are terrible. Tell them that they are the worst and they will not turn to me until there's no one left to tell. And then at the very end, he, he leaves that seed of hope, right? But just as this will be brought down to a stump, Israel will come back. But Isaiah knows by hearing this, it won't be in his lifetime. By seeing the throne room of God, he gets to experience the presence of God in his glory. But it comes at a cost of telling people something that I believe I, I, I tell people this about prophets. Oftentimes we think there are people who tell the future. That's like 10% of what they do. Most of what they talk about is actually the past and the present. But I, I describe it like this. They speak undesired truths. They share things that are true that people don't want to hear. It's like, you know, no one likes to be told that they're the worst. And so, but that being said, if they are not turning to God, prophets are the ones who said, this is something you need to do. This is the life that God is calling you into, whether it's comfortable to hear or not. Now, this was not just the story of Old Testament prophets like Micaiah or Isaiah. There was this apostle named John. And uh, legend has it about John's story and, and, and before he gets to a certain point where he writes a particular book, John was one of the final apostles who died, maybe the very last apostle who died. Legend has it, though, because he was preaching so much, the, emperor's finally, the emperor finally captured him, and, and they decided, we, we're going to kill John, because John is ministering to everyone. At one point, they threw him in prison. The problem was, he kept ministering to all the prisoners and the prison guards, and they kept converting. They're like, okay, we got to get that to stop. So they turn him loose. Well, then he just goes to everyone and begins preaching to them. And so they decide, you know what, we need to set an example. We're going to, since he's one of the last, we're going to make a real example. We don't want John to just die. We want John to suffer. So here's what we're going to do. They tie up John, they tie him to a board, and they get this giant, humongous pot of boiling hot oil. 
And they decide that they are going to slowly dip him all the way down into this oil. And so that way, as he goes into the oil from his feet to his knees, his waist, his chest, and then his head, they will see him squirm and scream in agony as his skin is melted away. Gruesome, right? And as he, they're tying him up, he's still preaching to the crowd. Hey, I might not make it out of this, but you can join me on the other side of eternity if you give your life to Jesus Christ. They finally tie him up. They set him above the oil, and they're going to slowly dip him down. And people are cheering at this point because they had been told, cheer or we will kill you too. So they're cheering. John is being slowly lowered down into this oil. And he's still preaching on his way down. And they put his feet in. And this is the part where you start would obviously start screaming. John continues preaching. He doesn't grimace. He doesn't, oh, nothing. Hey, again, I'm about to go under, but you still have a chance to give your life to Jesus Christ. Gets to his knees, to his waist. He's not yelling. He's not screaming. He is still going slowly up and up as the oil goes higher and higher. And I mean, their bubbles are coming up. It is hot. But he's not saying anything. And the people then go silent because they can't believe. How is he so headstrong? How is he so determined? Not even like grimace at this. And eventually, finally, he goes completely under in boiling hot oil. The emperor begins celebrating. Finally, we shut that guy up. He's dead and gone. And so they get ready to bring the board up, which in theory would just be bones by the time it comes up. Except when they bring it back up. John is still alive and well and tied to a board thinking, well, this is awkward. I'm still alive. And tells the people, God saved me and he will save you too. And he's thinking, how do I get this guy to stop? So here's the strategy. I can't put him in prison. He'll evangelize. I can't uh, let him go into the public. He'll evangelize. And evidently I can't kill him. So let's exile him. Let's put him on the island of Patmos. So they put him on this deserted island, Patmos. He was there all by himself, and it's there that he had a vision. And this is where he writes a book that we know as Revelation. And in that book, chapter 4, he has this experience of the throne room of God. And it's similar to the one Isaiah had, except the animals, the creatures, the people, they're all shouting A slightly different message, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. You know, the cost behind a throne throne room experience, some sort of suffering. John, the dipping hot oil, that that wasn't the only time John was arrested. It wasn't the only time he was hurt. He was flogged on more than one occasion. And in a flogging back in that time, many people died from it because of how brutal it was. Isaiah went through a large amount of uh, telling people some awful, awful things and was treated very poorly as a result. Micaiah was carried off into prison. And so if we're going to have these experiences of God and we sing songs like, how beautiful heaven must be, I'm not here to argue that at all. But oftentimes there's a price to be paid. And some of you might be thinking, my life is really comfortable, so should I go to like a northern Africa or a Middle Eastern country where the gospel is illegal and preach until they kill me? That's, that's not necessarily what I'm calling you to. That might be what God's calling you to. But perhaps it's something like the story of a guy named Nathan Barlow. 
Nathan Barlow was a doctor, and uh, at one point he discovered a large, large need in the country of Ethiopia. While he was there, he, began his, he would begin his morning rounds at 6.30 a.m., and he would go until midnight. And for, uh, for those of you who think we have a doctor shortage here, let me give you the stats on Ethiopia. For every one doctor in Ethiopia, there is 40,000 people, okay? 40,000 people to see one doctor. So many Ethiopians go their whole life without ever actually seeing one. And Barlow would work so hard in his rounds, but while he was in the rural areas, he discovered people with a condition called mossy foot. And mossy foot is, uh, it's, the way it's developed is when farmers will walk barefoot across this red composite clay soil, their, their feet develop, uh, they begin swelling, they develop uh, boils, it's painful, you can't really walk. That's not the worst part though. You see, the people who develop mossy foot are usually cast out of their communities. They're treated like lepers in Bible times. So it's not just that you have trouble walking. It's not just that you are in pain. It's also your friends and even your family cast you out. It's understood as a curse. There are stories of women whom Dr. Barlow worked with who were happily married, who had kids, who developed mossy foot, and the husband said, get out. You're not welcome here anymore. There are children who haven't spoken to their parents in years because of mossy foot. And the, and the way to prevent it is really simple, wear shoes. But that's how impoverished they are. They don't have that as an option. And so Barlow spent so many of his years working amongst the people who had mossy foot, working with the people who were literally social outcasts. Once you develop mossy foot, there is no cure. There's, there are treatments, but there is no cure. And Barlow spent the rest of his years, 60 years, where he could have come to the United States and made a very good living as a doctor, but decided not to. At one point, he was so inundated with work, he struggled, though, because he had a toothache. And and a toothache that was awful. It hurt to talk. it uh, It hurt to eat. And so he wanted to make sure this problem got taken care of. So he goes back to the United States. And while he's in the United States, they take care of the toothache. They just pull the tooth. And the dentist says, well, Dr. Barlow, is there anything else we can uh, do for you can we help, that we can help you with? He said, yeah, I need you to pull all my teeth out. He said, are all of your teeth hurting? I thought it was just the one. He said, no, it's just the one. The other teeth feel great. I need you to pull them all out, though, because it is so dumb that I have to come all the way back here for this, and I don't ever want to have to deal with this problem ever again. So I need you to pull all of my teeth out and give me false ones, because I want to be amongst my people in Ethiopia whom I can love and share Jesus with and give life and hope and community to. And so I need you to pull all my teeth out, and I, oh, for what it's worth, I'm a doctor. I'll pay full price. Deal. Had all his teeth pulled out, so he wouldn't have to deal with this again. When he was 86 years old, his health began to decline, and his daughter visited him there one day and said, hey, Dad, it's time you come home, and let me take care of you for the rest of your days. He agreed. He comes home. He's there for about a month before he goes back to his daughter and says, look, I know I'm not who I used to be in terms of my health, but I do know I can help these people in some ways, and if nothing else, I can just be amongst them. I'm going back to Ethiopia, and I'm going to live my final days there. I'd love for you to join me. But whether you come or not, that's where I'm going. His daughter actually agreed to join 
her father in her final days to live amongst the people, the rural people in Ethiopia. After he passed away, she actually started the Mossy Foot Project, which if you go to mossyfoot.com, you can actually read more about the work that still continues to this very day. All because Dr. Barlow decided to enter into the suffering of people whom no one else wanted anything to do with. You know, that's what John and Isaiah and Micaiah and so many other prophets and people in Scripture did before. If they got an experience of God, one of the ways that they encountered suffering wasn't necessarily by people hurling stones at them or or throwing them in prison. Sometimes they entered into the suffering of people who lived right there amongst them. And even Jesus in Luke 14 says, look, if you want to be my disciple, that's great, but you need to count up the cost. He shares two examples of this. If a man wants to build a house, he's not just going to start building the house. He needs to gather all of his supplies, all of his building materials, and then he needs to uh, factor in how much do these cost to decide, do I even have enough money to afford what I need to build the house? Because if he doesn't, he's going to get about halfway done and realize, I don't have enough money or supplies to finish this. He said, better yet, if there's a king who has 10,000 soldiers and realizes that the army he's about to face off against has 20,000 soldiers, you don't think that king is going to send a delegate out ahead and try to come to terms of peace so that his army will not be annihilated? He said, in the same way, count up the cost. And I want (laughs) to, I guess I want to stop because as I'm going through this, I feel like I'm... uh, (laughs) I feel like I'm saying some things that's almost like talking you out of following Jesus in some ways. So I wondered what would that look like if we actually did decide to enter into this, if we just chose a life that was less than what we currently have. I think Jesus actually talked about this in Matthew 13, verses 44. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a buried treasure. And it's like this man who finds his buried treasure out in this big, gross-looking field that no one would want. And when he found it, he took the treasure and he buried it again. And he went off, he sold his house, he sold his clothes, he sold his animals, he sold everything to his name so that he could afford that field that had the treasure inside of it. Can you imagine people looking at this man saying, you're giving up everything to buy this, that field is Oh, it's terrible. And the whole time that man knows that treasure contains so much more than anything that I've ever owned or could imagine owning. He said it's the same way when a man finds this gorgeous, huge pearl and sells everything he has so that he can afford the pearl because he knows it's more valuable than anything that he currently has. Perhaps the way that we experience a throne room of God is entering into the lives of those who are suffering so greatly. So I'll close with this story where I decided to try to do this myself. My senior year of college, I went to a college ministry conference, and it was one of those conferences, and you probably heard these lessons before, of we need to be the church, we need to do stuff. And I like bought into it, hook, line, and sinker. I'm like, you know what, yes, we do. And I'd gone on mission trips and stuff before, but I had never really loved on the people in my community. That, like the people who, like, yeah, if they were my friends, sure. But I, I never really had gone out of my comfort zone to love people that I didn't know, who might have dressed different than me, looked different than me, didn't have the opportunities that I had growing up. And so at the end of the conference, 
they give us those portable communion cups, you know, the one with the plastic styrofoam bread. And they gave me two of those. And they said, here's what we want you to do. We want you to take communion with someone who probably doesn't think they deserve it, who doesn't know Jesus. We want to invite you to take communion with whoever you think you should. If you want to throw this away, go ahead. And I thought, you know what? For once in my life, I'm actually going to do it. I am going to go find someone who is homeless, who's holding signs and, and, maybe, and potentially living under a bridge. I've never done this before. I have no idea what I'm about to encounter. But I hop in my truck after this conference and I start driving. I drove to an area where I, where I had seen several people there before. And uh, I, I got to be honest, I'm, I was nervous at the time. And, and I, I'm six foot one. I weigh like 205-ish, give or take, 47 pounds. And so um, as I'm going to... As I'm going to this area where I think I'll find someone, I pray this one prayer. All right, God, I, here's my promise. I am going to pick up the very first person I see, okay? You have my word. God, please make sure I'm bigger than that person in case, you know, because I had been told for a long time by, by family, by other people that be careful being around these types of people. They could, they could pull a knife on you. They could pull a gun on you. So be, be careful. And so... I'd never done this before, and I thought, you know what, God's going to take care of me, but God, just in case you don't, can I be like four inches taller and 80 pounds heavier? It'd, be, it'd mean a lot to me. And uh, so I'm, I'm driving down the road, and I get to the intersection where they normally are, and I see someone off in the distance, and I think, okay, that's him. And I remember saying to God, this is it, right? So I pull up. This man is at least six foot five and at least 275 pounds. And I, as I get closer, I'm thinking, surely not, surely not. And I get close enough to realize, yeah, that's exactly how big he is. I go, really? And I go and I roll my window down. I say, hey, you want to grab, you wanna, I, I don't have cash to give you, but I'd love to take you to lunch if you're open to it. He said, absolutely. So hop in. We go around the corner. We go to a sandwich shop. I buy him lunch and I tell him about communion. I tell him about God. And he said, oh yeah, I, I know about Christ. I gave my life to him a long time ago. And it's here that my my world about how people's lives function, who might hold up these kinds of signs or who might live under bridges, started to change. Because this man told me, his name was Ted, and Ted told me that for the last 55 years, he had worked at a chemical plant. Honest man. Um, cared about his coworkers, worked hard, and um, was an honest, respectable human being who after 55 years, the chemical plant went to him and said, we're letting you go because we want to hire younger people who know more about technology and will work for cheaper. So they cut him loose. Turns out all the other chemical plants had already done the same, and so he couldn't find work anywhere. He'd been kicked out of his home because, well, he couldn't find work. And he said, Casey, I know that like, you, you, you probably have an understanding about me or people like me, but I, I promise, and I said, I, I hope you know I've learned so much more from you than I ever could have before. And I think about the stories, stories that matter in Scripture, and I think about the stories of all of us. And I wonder how many times I've had an opportunity to experience the presence of God with people amongst me who are suffering. We prayed for Amy when we started off worship this morning. Right after I left stage, I discovered that she had actually passed away just before that prayer. Amy was, um, she had a number of friends, several who are, here, who are a part of this church. Brandy was not the only one. Cammy actually worked with her for a while before joining here. And this is 
a woman with young kids, husband, good person. And so I wonder what it would look like to experience God through entering into suffering with her family or with the people outside of this building. I wonder what it would look like if we decided to be people who realize that the throne room of God fully exists amongst the least of these. And maybe that is why Jesus spent so much time with them. Because in those people, he experienced the presence of the Father. So I'm going to invite our prayer team to head to the back. And I'm going to invite our praise team to come on out. And I'm going to give you this opportunity because there are people in our church who are here in this room this morning who are suffering right now. It might not be uh, financially. It, it might not be physically. It might be. But I will tell you it's, it's in these spaces that if you're sitting there thinking life's actually really good for me, then perhaps God has made it good for you so that you can enter into the suffering of someone else. These people back here are trusted people who would be happy to sit with you and love on you in the hurt that you're going through. So if there's something that we can pray with you over, feel free to head to the back as we stand and sing this next song.